there to give you some clarity for, for Gary and, and everybody else. It was about the power of God and his righteousness being absolute and not relative, right? God's power, God's righteousness, God's love, uh, it's absolute, it's holy, it's perfect, it's not relative like ours, it doesn't go up and down depending on how we feel, if we're uh, going through something or struggling, our righteousness or our attitude or our perspective has a tendency to change, but God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always faithful, he's always loving, he always has our best interest in mind. Somebody say amen. Amen. We all know what it's to, uh, like to be with somebody, to be in relationship with folks where even when at their best, they love you, they care about you, your best interest is, is at their heart and on their mind, but they are not always that way. Sometimes they care about their best interests. Sometimes they're just not uh, able to love you maybe the way that you want to be loved, but thank God that he's not that way. Amen? Amen. At the close of our series last week, we looked at Cornelius and Peter. We looked at a truth seeker and a witness of that truth and what happens when God brings those two together. I want to build on that uh, and what we saw with that series as we start our new series this morning. The, the series title is Stereotypes. Stereotypes. That's what we're going to be looking at. And before I even get into it, I want to say that I think our series artwork is always on point. So... That stuff takes hours for people who are not talented. <laughs> Secondly, I'd like to say that although David got blessed with his, his E equals MC squared picture this morning, amen, I don't think anybody's getting a stereo or a computer <laughs> at the end of this month. But we'll see how it goes. Come to the last Sunday service of the month and we'll see uh, what Von Zell and them have in store. Were we blessed last week, last Sunday, amen? amen. Praise God, praise God. <clears throat> So what is a stereotype? Let's start there. The definition of a stereotype. Number one, a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type of person or thing, such as a standard conventional image, received idea, or a cliche or formula. That's a stereotype. Definition number two, a relief printing plate cast in a mold made from composed type or an original plate. So it's a relief plate uh, is also a stereotype. So most of us have some familiarity with stereotypes, whether it's because we put those out on others or they have been placed upon us. Uh, there's a difference though between a stereotype and a connotation. So we're gonna learn some things again this morning. Let me tell you what a connotation is. Definition, an idea or feeling that a word invokes in addition to its literal or primary meaning. Here's an example of a connotation. <clears throat> it says, the word discipline has an unhappy connotation of punishment and repression. So discipline has a specific meaning, but the connotation that comes with it is about uh, something being difficult, being hard, being repressed, being held down. That's what we think when we hear the word discipline. Isn't it interesting that in the dictionary, when they want to give you an example of a negative connotation, they use the word discipline, which the, the Bible says is the root word of discipleship, which God says is the beginning of everything in the life of a Christian, is to be discipled and to have discipline. But in the world that we live in, the first thoughts that come into our heart, that come into our mind when we hear uh, discipline or discipleship is negativity. 
how difficult will that make it for some of us to really go and be and, and engage in the things that God has planned for us? How we think about these things, how we stereotype or how we're stereotyped, what emotions and what thoughts come to our minds when people speak uh, certain words to us. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Jesus' command when he's about to go back uh, to the Father in heaven, he says, Make disciples, number one. Number two, baptize them. Number three, teach them. And number four, I'm with you always. Where are you in that progression? Make disciples. Get saved. Become a disciple of Christ, disciplined to the word of God, the spirit of God, the leading of God in your life. You need to become a disciple. God did not tell the disciples, go out and make Christians. Go out and make churches. Go out and make fellowships. Go out and make bands. Go out and make groups. Go out and have uh, uh, couples nights out and kids excursions. All that stuff is good and well, but it's secondary to being disciples. Disciplined to the word and the will of God. Then it says, baptize them. 201 course, Saturday, June 24th on baptism. For those of us that want to learn more about that and what it means and why Jesus Christ himself might have said this. Then it says, teach them. Right? We have to be taught. We have to learn to learn. Somebody say amen. Many of us got all the way through high school and never read a book all the way through. That's crazy. I'm not pointing the finger because I lived that. I experienced it. <laughs> and then we thought, well, I can't wait to graduate high school. I don't have to learn anymore. Or if you went to college, I can't wait to get out of college because then I don't have to learn anymore. Man, we should be lifelong learners. Amen. We should want to learn things. The first book I read all the way through was this one. <laughs> So discipleship, teaching, learning, commandments, they have a negative connotation in the world that we live in, but they're powerful words in the kingdom. That's the experience of the Christian life. So if you still think negatively about some of those words, you are going to be missing out on the experience that God has for you as part of his kingdom. This is what Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have to change our minds. Somebody say amen. amen. Get rid of your stinking thinking. Stop talking the way we talk. Stop acting the way we act. Stop going the places that we go. We have to be changed. We can't be conformed to this world. We should look different, talk different, experience life differently than we used to before we knew the Lord. Amen. People should understand that they're in the presence of something different when they get around us. We need to reclaim the meanings of some of these words and the emotions and thoughts that are associated with them, right? So let's connect the dots. When a true seeker is brought to a witness of Jesus, right, they receive the word of God, they respond to the gospel for salvation, what's supposed to happen then? We ended last week by saying, all right, we've got Cornelius and he connects with Peter. Cornelius wants the truth. Peter's there and gives him the truth and then the scripture just kind of ends and we ended service and that was all great. But what happens to Cornelius after that? What does he do after that? These people enter into a new life after years and years of preconceived notions, of stereotypes and negative connotations about God 
and these things have to be overcome. When somebody gives their life to the Lord, in this church we pray, and it says all of heaven rejoices, but they have 25, 35, 55 years of thinking a certain way, behaving a certain way, talking a certain way, and then we just rejoice that they got saved, but all these stereotypes in their mind about God and about the church and about what God wants, these things have to be overcome. They have to be changed and transformed. The mind needs to be renewed. The heart needs to be transplanted. How do we do that? Ministers and leaders, brothers and sisters in, in Christ, they begin to tell these new believers that everything they heard is a lie. Everything you heard is a lie. What you used to think about God and what you used to think about the church and what you used to think about what it is that God wants from you, that is a lie, and we are here to tell you the truth. We love them, and we come to the altar, and we place hands on them, and we pray for them, but are we telling them what they need to know? Are we discipling them into faith and into strength? Are we helping them to be transformed by the Spirit of God? We tell them things like, discipline is good, <laughs> when they've never heard that before, or they don't really believe that. It's hard to tell somebody discipline is good when you're undisciplined. Somebody say amen. We tell them faithfulness is good. We tell them sacrifice is good, and now it gets to get a little bit tough for them. What do you mean sacrifice is good? Humility is power. Nobody wants to be humble. Nobody wants to yield. Nobody wants to be second. And now you're going to come into the church, we're going to tell you, hey, humility is a good thing. The most powerful people are those who are the most humble. Yes, amen. Those who have the most influence are those who are willing to serve and not be served. Amen. We tell them love is denial of self. What do you mean love is denial of self? I want to love and I want to be loved. I don't want to deny myself. I want to have give and take. If you're nice to me, Mary, I'll be nice to you. We'll compromise. If there's something you want to do, okay, well, then you got to let me do something I want to do. No, love is denial of self. It don't matter what I want, babe. You can have anything you want, whenever you want, however you want. It's all about you. I'm just here to serve. <laughs> Delete this recording. <laughs> but listen, that's what it's like in our relationship with God. He's telling us these things that are foreign to us. Most husbands are like, man, stop now. <laughs> Most wives, let's talk about some submission. They don't want to hear that either, right? Because our negative connotations, our stereotypes that we built in all these years out in the world, we think we can just bring them into the church and continue with them. You don't get to bring that stuff into the church. You know why baptism is the second course in our, in our courses? Because number one, you need to be saved. Period, point blank. Give your life to the Lord. Know what salvation is and understand that you're saved and have it confirmed so that you're not always up and down thinking God left you just because you're going through a hard time, thinking that God doesn't love you, thinking that his blood was only good enough to wash you if you're going to be good. No, you need to know what real salvation is. And after that, you need to be baptized. What it means to be baptized is to die with Christ and all your old stereotypes and connotations and ways of thinking, they get buried and you're raised in newness of life. <clears throat> we tell these folks things like freedom is actually slavery. They say, what does that mean? <laughs> on Wednesday night, Gary ministered and he ministered on being dependent upon God. Being dependent upon God. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says, All things are lawful for me, 
but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What the scripture means is when you get saved, God says to you, you're free. Isn't that the opposite of what most people think when you get saved? God says to you when you give your life to him, you're free. Read the scriptures and how many times did Jesus say this? He'd touch somebody, he'd heal somebody, he'd forgive somebody, he'd stop bleeding, he'd open their eyes, he'd open their ears. He'd do all these amazing things. He'd cleanse them of their leprosy and then he'd say, all right, now here's exactly what I want you to do and how I want you to do it and what you can't do anymore and where you have to be and here's what time service starts. No, he said, go and sin no more. He said, you're free. Go. I heard a story this week on the radio it was talking about Abraham Lincoln and slavery. Obviously, slavery was rampant during uh, uh, the times of his presidency. It said that he had never been to a slave auction or anything like that. He decided to go one day. He went. It says that there was a young African-American uh, woman that came up to be bidded for and to be bought, sold into slavery. And he started bidding on her. And the bidding was going back and forth, continuing to be raised. And eventually, he won paid for her. She came to him. They delivered her, his property, his slave to him. And first words he said to her is, uh, you're free. And she says, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? He said, you're free to say what you want, go where you want, act how you want to act, do what you want to do. And her response to him was, well, then I'll go with you. See, freedom is actually slavery. When Jesus tells us, you're free, the response should be, okay, well, then I'll go with you. So when Paul says, everything is lawful for me, but everything is not profitable, I'm free to do whatever I want, but I will not be brought under the slavery of anything. What he's saying is, I'm free, but I sell myself. I willingly put myself under slavery of Christ. Because I'm either going to be his slave, or I know what's going to happen to me. I'll be a slave to the things that I was already a slave to. So you know what, Lord? I'll go with you. See, our minds need to be transformed and changed. Stereotypical thinking and negative connotations, they poison us. They poison the church. If there's one place this shouldn't be, it shouldn't be in the church, but yet it still is. Listen to this about slavery. 1 Corinthians 7.20 says, Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. See, in order to, to receive scriptures like this, you've got to be transformed. Your mind has to be transformed from the way that it used to, to think the way that we used to see the world, the way that we see time, the way that we see commitment, relationship, value. A slave who's seeking physical freedom from men, from oppressors, right? And they use all the life that they have, their life breath is, is what I call it. They use all of their life's breath to obtain that freedom. And at the same time, they forfeit or neglect the spiritual freedom that God is offering them, they forfeit and neglect the discipleship process that God wants them to enter into that he would be able to meet with him, that is a tragedy. To spend all your life trying to get free from men, God says here in the scripture, do not become slaves of men. What he's saying is even if you're already in that physical state, don't give them your spirit. 
Don't give them your effort. Don't give them your life breath. Because even if you get that freedom, what value is that? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? Those who are free and spend all their time trying to remain free, right? Got to make as much money as possible. Got to have everything in order. Don't want to ever have somebody have authority over you, right? And they spend all of their life's breath making sure that they can stay free and they neglect or forfeit, forfeit the experience that God has for them, the relationship that God has for him or her. So why is this series called Stereotypes? How many of you have been stereotyped or profiled at some point in your life? Dang. How many of you have been judged by the way you look, things that you have or don't have, where you live, how you live, your level of education, your family, your upbringing, anything else? <laughs> People are like, yeah, I want to talk about it. I saw, the, I saw the picture stereotypes. That's why I'm here. I want to talk about it. Help. We've all been there. We've all had those kind of experiences. However, when people stereotype us, when people label us, they use single words <clears throat> to describe us because those words come with a multitude of connotations, right? They look at you and they call you this, they call you that, right? They say that you have this problem and it just puts this declaration on you of who you are and what your value is, right? In our series, however, we are not going to look at all the different types of stereotypes and all the different ways that it makes us feel because we'll never end the series if we try to do that. What we are going to do is look at stereotypes in a different way, and my prayer is that by the time we finish this series, uh, we'll have a completely transformed view of certain stereotypes. I also pray that... Uh, the negative connotations that are associated with certain words will be stripped from us, at least. Amen. I'm not really worried about the world and how they look at things and how they feel about things, although I used to be in the world. Now I'm just in the world. I'm not of the world anymore, so I'm not going to worry about fixing those problems. But what I do want to see God fix is how we think about certain words and the emotions that are invoked inside of us when people say certain things or use certain words about us. So I want to pray. Lord, as we enter into this new series, God, I just pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, Lord God, that we would hear your voice, that you would speak loudly, that you would speak clearly, Lord God, and that the things we hear, the things that we learn, Lord, the things that your spirit supernaturally, Lord, places within us, that we would do whatever it takes to have that impact us here in this physical world, Lord God that it would change the way that we act, change the way that we behave, Lord God, change the way that we speak, change the way that we see ourselves and value ourselves, change the way that we see others and value them, Lord God. That your word would reign supreme in our lives, Lord God, that we wouldn't be a people who just come in and out of your building, Lord God, but that we would be the true temple of the living God, that you'd live inside of each and every one of us, that you'd direct us, Lord, that we would place ourselves as servants to you, Lord God. That when we hear you speak our name and you tell us that we are free to go and sin no more, that we would turn right back around, look you in your eyes, Lord God, and say, well, then we'll go with you. Have your way. We love you, Lord God. Let this series change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. All right. So the first stereotype that I want to look at as we get into our series is that of a Christian. Say Christian. Christian. What do most people mean when they say, uh, oh, I heard he's a Christian now? Oh, I heard she gave her life to Jesus. 
Does that come with a positive connotation, positive thoughts, or does that come with a whole bunch of negativity? Right? Oh, you're a Christian now. Okay. Oh, you gave your life to Jesus. Oh, that's great. How has something that's so amazing been reduced to all this negativity? No power in the statement, no joy in the statement. Even Christians, when we speak those words, right? Oh, did you hear so-and-so got saved? We say it like it's nothing. Amen. When it's truly the most important thing that could ever happen on this planet. And we just talk about it like it's, like it's no big deal. This is what becoming a Christian in the world typically means today. The negative connotation, the stereotype is that men and women become weak. They become soft. They become lifeless, restricted, sad, fake, hypocritical, and judgmental. Those are more likely the thoughts when somebody says, I heard he got saved or I heard she gave her life to Jesus. These are all the negative connotations that come along with that statement in the world that we live in. And many of us can testify to that because that's what we used to think when we heard somebody started going to church or gave their life to Jesus or they found God or they found religion. That's the way I used to think. Now those people are weak. Those people are sad. They're fake. They're out there doing the same thing we're doing. Why are they fronting? Part of the reason becoming a Christian is stereotyped that way is because God is stereotyped. God is misrepresented and God is oversimplified. Romans 1.22 says, Men and women professing to be wise, they become fools. They've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. It says that we look at God and we make him like us, weak like us, superficial like us at times. Right? Unable to control himself like we are at times. So when we look at God and we stereotype him and we make him something that he's not, what would we expect people to look at Christians as? The same way. I think the other reason that Christians are stereotyped the way that we are is because of our behavior. It's one thing to look at God and misrepresent him and, and oversimplify who he is and what his true nature is. It's another problem that Christians' behavior makes it easy to stereotype us that way. I used to get mad when people would stereotype me as a thief. Walk through the store and the lady want to cover her purse, right? Walk by a car, they want to lock the doors. I'd be mad. I ain't no thief, yet I'm stealing. <laughs> but you don't know I'm stealing. Why are you stereotyping me? It's the same thing with Christians. We get mad when we get stereotyped that way, but we are that way. Amen. We don't behave like we're supposed to behave. We don't live like we're supposed to live. We don't honor God the way that we're supposed to honor God. And then we get mad when people talk bad about Christians. And when they stereotype us. Last week in our scriptures, we saw Peter. He's praying like we should be praying. He's fasting like we should be fasting. He's talking to God. The Holy Spirit shows up and begins to challenge him and say, Peter, you've got to behave differently. You can't act like this. I don't care what you've been or how you've thought your whole life. From this moment on, if you really want to be my servant, you need to change the way that you think. Right now, right here. A lot of us think that God comes, comes to us like, hey, you know, we've got plenty of time. Let's, I don't care. We can change over a year or two. Whatever your pace is. Let's just, let's just walk together and don't worry. Just keep doing what you're doing. Read the scriptures. A lot of times he's like, hey, this is what I want and this is what I want right now. 
That's what he told Peter. Peter brings this good news to the Gentiles, right? They're considered unclean people. He's not allowed to spend time with them, go into their houses. They're second-class citizens. And Peter says, whatever you want, God, I'll do what you want. You truly are Lord, not just Savior. I don't want to get into that, to that too much this morning, but everybody wants a Savior. Nobody wants a Lord. Jesus, save me, help me, cleanse me, forgive me, take my sins, but don't tell me what to do. Don't hold me accountable, right? But Peter doesn't say that. He does what God tells him to do. He goes to see Cornelius. He shares the gospel. Spirit of God falls. Everybody gets saved. Everybody gets baptized, right? Are we spirit-filled agents of the living God where anywhere we go, the atmosphere changes for the positive? People get filled with the spirit. They get saved, and they want to be baptized. Is that how we uh, are seen? Is that the life that we're living when you go to family functions this summer, when you go to the 4th of July barbecue, are people going to be like, man, I'm just, I want to sit by you. <laughs> I want to eat my burger like you eat yours because you're spiritual. <laughs> Does the atmosphere get better? Do people want to be around us? Do people say, like, what happened to you? How are you changed? How are you so happy? I, I know what's going on in your family. Why do you look like everything's okay? What is this church that you go to? What is this God that you know? That's, the, that's what you read in the scriptures about men and women who knew God and who loved God. That's what their life was like. Is our life that way? All right. So Peter has this powerful experience. He, he returns to the church. He returns to the apostles and the disciples, and they're going to rejoice with him, right? No, they persecute him, and they rebuke him. They say, what are you doing with those second-class citizens? That's not who we are. We don't go to those people. We don't act like that. We don't talk to them about our God. Right? Listen to his testimony to the other church folks. Peter says in Acts 11:15, he's telling them the story. He says, as I began to speak to them, the Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. He's talking to his group of people who are stereotyping another group of people, and he's saying, Look, it was God. I just did what he told me to do, and the same thing he did for us, he did for them. They got silent. They thought about it. The Spirit spoke to them. He said, All right, now God is opening up to everybody his love and his grace and his mercy. Verse 19 now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. They were preaching the word to no one but to Jews only. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, they spoke to Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and listen to this, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. These are our stereotypes for Christianity. These are the stereotypes 
for our faith says that they were first called Christians in Antioch. If you remember the definition, the second part of the definition I gave you for stereotypes, listen, it's a relief printing plate, a cast in a mold made from composed type or an original plate. Here's what you need to think about. Uh, a printing plate for money, right? We've all seen the movies. None of us really know what it's about, but we've seen the movies, right, where you have a printing plate and you can make money and you stamp it and people want to counterfeit that, right? What the definition says of a, of a true stereotype is that it's like a, a printing plate for money that when it starts to get used, it starts to get uh, uh, smooth around the edges, it's no longer putting the right image, it's no longer uh, exactly the same as the beginning, they've made a second one so that when this one gets old or it's not working, they replace it and they put another one in and what gets printed is exactly what was printed in the beginning. That's what a stereotype truly is supposed to be. If you and I had the same clarity, the same impact, the same imprint of the first Christians, what would this world look like? We're supposed to be just like them. They were led by the Spirit to do things that they had never done before in their lives. We should be led by the Spirit to do things that we've never done before. They challenged each other as to why they made some of the decisions that they made. They evaluated each other's actions, right? Peter goes off and he's praying with people and he's telling them that they can, they can know the Lord and they get saved, they get filled with the Spirit. But the rest of the church who wasn't there, they say, why'd you go there? What did you do? Was it fruitful? Tell us what's going on in your life. Why are you making the decisions that you're making? And then they receive it, they hear it, they understand that it was fruitful and they move on. How many of us are really challenging each other about the decisions we're making in our lives? How many of you see something on Facebook and you get on the phone instead of posting obnoxious nonsense, you get on the phone and say, hey, I saw what you wrote. Everything all right? Why are you talking like that? Why are you living like that? Why are you going to do some of the things that you're doing? We should be challenging each other about the way that we live and the decisions that we make. Amen. That's what the Christians in the beginning were doing. They fled from persecution, but not to hide. Many of us flee from persecution, but we just hide so that nobody knows we're a Christian. We get ready to leave the house. We're like, where are we going? Oh, yeah, I can wear my Christian shirt today then. <laughs> where are we going? Oh, let me go ahead and tuck in the cross. Let me tuck this in today. See, when we flee, we don't want to be seen as Christians. We don't want anybody to know that we go to church. We don't want anybody to know that we've been saved, right? When they fled, it was because they were going to be murdered. And then whenever they got where they were fleeing to, they preached the gospel. It says that they established themselves in a certain location, Paul, uh, and he taught for a year to make sure everybody really understood who God was and what he wanted to do in their lives. It says that they were called Christians because they resembled Christ in his power, authority, his fruit, his love, and his sacrifice. The way they were living, the way they were behaving, what they were doing, what they were speaking, how they were engaging with each other and other people, it says that they called them Christians, many Christ. Man, those people are like Christ. Is that what people mean when, when they call you a Christian? Man, seeing this brother is like seeing Christ. Talking to that sister is like talking to the Lord. Acts 4.13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. We have to be with Jesus. I love 
worshiping God. I love coming to church. I love seeing the altars full of people who are in his presence and, and connecting with him. But if this is the only place you get to be with Jesus, we're not stereotypical Christians like they were back when this started. They were always in his presence. Everywhere they went, people said, man, that person's been with Jesus. Mary talked to me last night about what she kind of testified during worship, about talking to a young lady about the work that she does. And, and one thing that she left out of her story that she, she told me about, uh, she said as, as she, this young lady, as she counsels these veterans and as she talks to these people who have been through war and they have uh, PTSD, she said, uh, she said she thinks about us often. She said, to me, it's like what you guys do with the church. She says, I, I have to jump into these people's pool and it's crazy and I'm just in there with them and then I jump out and I jump into the next client's pool. And I just go in there with them and swim around in their craziness and try to help them as much as I can. I jump out and I get into the next pool and then she says, at night, I go home and then I have to jump into my pool with my family and do our craziness. And then the next morning I get up and I, and I go right back to it. She says, to me, that's what I see from the outside looking in at you guys and looking at, at the church. So she really had me thinking, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about what she was trying to explain or how she was trying to uh, compare what we do and, and how we live. To me, <laughs> I think that we should always be in the pool with Christ. I think we should always be in, in his presence, right? When we disciple, when we engage with people, when we're going through, through your lives, it's, it's really not about us and it's really not about you. It's about whatever God is going to do Amen. in us and through us. Bearing his image, looking like him, talking like him, feeling like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, but we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So if you have Christ, who's the archetype, he's the example, he's the first one, the stereotype, and he says, I put my stamp on these disciples and on these apostles, and then these disciples and apostles put their stamp on those that they encounter and lead to the Lord. Do you really feel this morning as, as if you look like the archetype, the first one, and the disciples that you read about in the Bible? How can we? I don't want to be a counterfeit, church. I don't want to think that I bear the image of the living God and I'm being transformed into his image, but I'm, I'm bearing the image of a counterfeit. I'm bearing the image of a stereotype that the world has put on the church and on Christians that is not the reality that Jesus says we should be. Amen. And how do you know the difference? You can go into any church, and if you don't know the word and you don't feel the presence of God and you don't have the spirit alive inside of you, you can bear the image of whatever that church wants you to bear and think that you're what you should be, and you could be so far off. You could be so far off to the point where Jesus Christ himself will be coming into the church looking for Christians and not find any. You'll say, that's not my image. I have, I have the original plates. <laughs> He'll say, I have the original plates. This is the image. What, what are you? What is he? Somebody at some point came in with some counterfeits, and you guys have been using that for far too long. Stereotype is not a negative word. It just depends on what you're being stereotyped as. So I'm going to give you three things to take home this morning regarding being stereotypical Christians. 
Number one, gathering and waiting is stereotypical of Christians. Gathering and waiting. In Luke 24, 49, Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endowed with power from on high. He says, listen, I want to empower you, but you have to wait. Get together, gather, talk, hold hands, worship, pray, all that kind of stuff, but wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 12, the, the, the disciples and apostles, they received God's word. It says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They gathered. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I remember when I first got saved, everybody's like, man, it's crazy. You go to church like every week, every Sunday? And I'm like, man, I even go on Wednesdays. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. Many of you know what I'm talking about. When you first get saved and like you look up, you're like, man, I went four weeks in a row. I better stop before I develop a habit. And then you look up and a year goes by and you're like, that's just what I do. I go to church on Sundays. I go to church on Wednesdays. Why? Because I feel something different there. I remember getting saved and this being the only safe place. I'd walk into the church, I'd feel safe, I'd walk out and I'd be crazy again. Yep. Amen. I'd be depressed again. I'd be anxious again. I'd be tempted again. Amen. And I couldn't wait for the next Wednesday night so I could get back into church and feel worship and feel God again. I was telling Mary recently that I don't remember when that changed from this is the only place I felt comfortable to now I feel the presence of God everywhere that I go, whether I'm here or not, right? That's what they were doing. The, the stamp that was put on them was one of gathering. It says they all got together. Jesus said, wait, he said, gather and wait for, for me to send my spirit. So what did they do? They gathered and they waited, the men and the women. Acts 2.1 says this, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? They waited, they gathered, they prayed, God sent his Holy, his Holy Spirit and, uh, and filled them, giving them power. It says that they began to speak in tongues. This is called the day of Pentecost. Tell somebody you're a Pentecostal and look at what the negative connotations are and the stereotypes are. When it should be something joyful and powerful and exciting and a gift from God, oh, you're one of them crazy Pentecostals speaking in tongues. Our words have been robbed from us. 
Our understanding has been robbed from us, and our desire to seek the Holy Spirit has been robbed from us because of stereotypes. If you look at the fruit, right, when Peter came back and talked about what happened at Cornelius' house, they said they got quiet, they thought about the fruit, and they said, all right, then this must be God. If you look at the fruit of the day of Pentecost, what happened? It says everybody from every nation was represented, and they all heard and understood in their own language. What that means is when the Holy Spirit comes and moves, it becomes clear to anybody who's willing to listen. There's fruit in that, church. Do you gather and do you wait? Do you gather and do you wait? What I think happens to a lot of us as Christians, which is not stereotypical of what we see in the scriptures, is when we struggle, we don't want to gather. And when we struggle, we don't want to wait. We'll wait at home till things get better and then we'll come back. We'll wait until we get a few more dollars and then we'll fellowship again. I want to be stereotypical, don't you? Just gather. If you actually talk to each other, you know some people right now are probably struggling like crazy, but they're gathered. They're just waiting for God to do something. And some others are just having a blast and everything's all good and they're just enjoying life, can't wait for summer, but they gather still. They just wait for what God has next. In our 13 years, whatever it is, of being saved, there's been good seasons, there's been bad seasons, but we always gather and we always wait on the Lord. You know what might help some of you guys is, is to challenge yourself to be obligated and committed to gathering, right? When you say you're going to teach, when you say you're going to preach, when you say you're going to take care of kids, when you say you're going to chaperone or babysit, when you say you're going to do those things, you become obligated. And I'll tell you this much, obligation has been the best thing in my Christianity. Yeah. If I wasn't obligated, I don't know where my wife and I would be. <laughs> I don't even know if I would be able to save my wife and I. <laughs> If I wasn't obligated to be in church. People look at us all the time and say, oh, it must be so hard on you. And you got to be there every week and, and you got to do this. And, and pastor, we're just going to pray for you. And I'm like, man, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> Imagine being forced to be in the right place every week. <laughs> you think we're burdened. We're blessed. So number one. It's stereotypical for Christians to gather and to wait. If you're not gathering and waiting, uh, you're missing out. Number two, expect the unexpected. Expecting the unexpected is also stereotypical for Christians. 1 Corinthians 16, 6, Paul says, It may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Such a good word. For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 6 through 9. Listen to what Paul actually says. He says, it may be that I'll remain. He says, I don't know what's going to happen. I might get to stay with you guys. He says, you may send me on my journey. I don't know if you're going to be able to help me and send me or not. I'm not sure. He says, I hope to stay. I have hope. I hope that things work out. I get to be with you guys. And then he says, if the Lord permits. I used to hate it because my mom used to say that all the time. And I thought it was just noncommittal. I love you, Miss Peaches. <laughs> she would say, if the Lord says the same, and I, and I would say, you just don't want to commit. Tell me if you're coming or not. Tell me if we're going or not. Don't say if the Lord permits. Don't say if the Lord says the same. But what was really happening is she was saying, I don't know what God is going to do, son. It may be that I'm there. 
It may be that I'm not. It may be that you send me on. I don't know. And that's so frustrating for somebody who wants to know and wants to live on a schedule. You should see my calendar. But it's stereotypical for a Christian to act like that because what you're really saying is, whatever the Lord tells me to do is what I'm going to do. I can make plans with you, Vaughn, but I may have to break them because the Lord may have other plans for me. Then he says this, but I will tarry until Pentecost. You hear him? He says, look, I don't know if I'm going to be with you, if we're going to go here, we're going to go there, but I will wait for Pentecost. Because that's part of what's stereotypical for every Christian, which is, I will gather and I will wait. Paul says, I ain't going anywhere until I get filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. I might be there, I might not, I might go, you might help, I might be able to do something with you, I might not. However, what I know for sure is I'm going to wait until I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, by the way, there's many adversaries. He reminds us that it's still dangerous. I'm not just saying this because... I might want to help you, I might not want to help you, and I'm just going to wait for God to do something. He's saying there's actually an enemy out there. How many of us forget that you have an enemy? Somebody trying to hurt you right now, involved in the decisions that you're going to make. There's a story in the Old Testament about Jonathan and his armor bearer and this idea of expecting the unexpected, not knowing what God's going to do. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. It happened on the day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to a young man who bore his armor, right? Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrisons on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was sitting on the outskirts under a pomegranate tree. Then the people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest. He was wearing the ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. This is where we get the statement, between a rock and a hard place. You ever heard that before? The name of one rock was Bozes, the name of the other Sanaa. The front of one faced north and the other south. Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come on, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Think of how crazy this is. He tells one one of his, his, uh, his armor bearer, his disciple, his one that stood with him, let's go over to these uncircumcised Philistines and let's go fight. And we might win. There's a bunch of them. God might use us and we'll be heroes, but we might die. I know that's how some of you feel when I ask you to do stuff. Like when I talk about like outreach or starting ministries or, you know, some of the crazy things I ask you guys to do. Uh, But we should be like armor bearers. (laughs) We should expect the unexpected. You should see some of the things that I've seen. Never mind. We're going to have Jericho in a month in August. But you should have seen the way Mary looked at me when I told her about Jericho about seven years ago. I said, hey, babe, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to a park. We're going to have outside service. We're going to walk around the city, and we're going to be silent, and God's going to move like crazy. She dropped all the armor. She was no longer an armor bearer. (laughs) She was like, nah, we ain't doing that. (laughs) It ain't going to happen. And now look at what God has done. Because you need to expect the unexpected. 
Story ends that Jonathan goes, his armor bearer goes, they kill everybody, they win the battle, everybody uh, back at the camp begins to rejoice and see God for who he really is. That should be stereotypical for Christians. We should, do, we should expect the unexpected and we should do the unexpected. We should live by faith and walk by faith. The last one, we have gathering and waiting is stereotypical. Expecting the unexpected is stereotypical. And the last one, harvesting fruit is stereotypical of Christians. How many of you are fruitful? Like just fruitful in your lives right now. People can come to you, you can just feed them. You come to my house right now, you're getting egg burritos. That's all we got. <laughs> my kids ate half their egg burrito on the way to church this morning because they're tired of egg burritos. I think they might have had one last night for dinner. <laughs> we left the party and we told them, hey, we were at the birthday party. You should have ate there. You saw all that food. <laughs> it's like, we took a present. We eaten everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Lord, help me. <laughs> Harvesting fruit, being fruitful, that should be the stereotypical thing for Christians. You know, spiritually, when people come to us, we should have food for them. We shouldn't give them egg sandwiches, and we shouldn't tell them to go to a party and take all they can get. They should be able to come to us and say, we're, we're able to say to them, hey, we, we harvest fruit. That's what we do. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, we got living water. We got good fruit for you. Here you go, in the spirit, amen? If you've ever been to, to one of those... Uh, Actual farms, right? You know, we go to Vaughn's and uh, Ralph's, Walmart. That's how we roll. <laughs> but you know, all that stuff comes from a real farm. If you go to a real farm and you buy the fruit there, they'll say, hey, we got, taste some of this. You want to try some of these blueberries? You want to try some of these strawberries? You know why? Because they have an abundance of fruit. That's what it should be like for us as Christians, right? Harvesting fruit should be stereotypical. That should just be who we are. Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's us, right? That's us, right? Stop lying. That ain't us. That's them other Christians. I want to say it again. Everybody raised their hand when we were like, who's been stereotyped? Me. Who's been treated a certain way for how you are, how you look, what you have and don't have? We all raised our hands. How many of us can really raise our hands on this? We... Bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why do you think we're being stereotyped as Christians a certain way? It's because we don't have the fruit of the Spirit like Christians should have. It's not something that super Christians one day get to obtain. It's the standard for every Christian. Amen. When I read that list, we think, oh, that's for super Christians. That's for Greg Laurie and them. <laughs> Right? That's for like Kirk Franklin and <laughs> Bethel and them. You know them super Christians. No. That's for every Christian that says, I've given my life to Jesus and he's taken my sins away and filled me with his spirit. I can now have the fruit of the spirit and I should bear it. Amen. Should be stereotypical. So how do we bear this fruit? Say faith. faith. Say faith. Faith. Say grace. grace. Say knowledge. knowledge. Say claim. claim. I ain't talking name it and claim it. Let's listen to the scripture. There are people that ain't never been to church in their life. I just claim blessings. No, you don't. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, same Peter, right, that went to Cornelius' house. 
a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Listen, I pray, I know how I am sometimes. It doesn't always make sense, but I pray that some of the dots are getting connected. Listen to what Peter said. We saw his experience. We saw his testimony to the church. We see him doing things that the Spirit is leading him to do. And then when he starts his letter, he says, Peter, a bond servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know what a bondservant means? It means I don't have to be his slave, but I volunteered to be a slave of Christ. The same thing I was telling you earlier, he understands that his freedom is really slavery and dependence upon Christ. And that's how he starts his letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The first thing he says is, man, make yourself a slave. Otherwise, these things won't make sense to you. If all you want is freedom in the world, you won't understand spiritual bondage and being a bondservant to Christ. Simon Peter, a bondservant apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which we have been given by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust he says a lot here he says by faith we receive the grace of god by his divine power, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you have faith, you receive the grace of God, and he says everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you. A lot of us are still waiting for stuff that's already been given to us. Unless the scriptures are lying. I know when I talk, I talk with like conviction about the scriptures because I believe it. When he says all things have been given to me, and if I don't have something, I know it's because... I'm not doing something I'm supposed to be doing. It's not because God is withholding. He gave us all things, it says. How does it say? It says, by knowledge we understand these great promises and precious gifts that have been made to us and given to us. You have to know it. You have to get knowledge. The last thing he says is that we have to claim the promises and become partakers of the divine nature. That's how you bear fruit. Claiming the promises and becoming a partaker of the nature of God the Spirit of God. You have to claim the promises, not name it and claim it. It says, have faith, experience grace, get some knowledge, and then actually go out and claim the things that God has promised to you. That's the way that it happens. What do we have to add to our faith? Peter goes on the next five verses and the last five verses. Peter says, for this reason, if you want this, if you want to claim the things that God has for you, you want the knowledge, you want to have this faith and this grace interaction, he says, for this reason, give all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and they've forgotten that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter says we have work to do. We have some adding to our faith to do. I feel like a crazy man sometimes because I'm telling people, just get them to church, get them to church. 
Let God move on them. Let them experience worship. Let them hear the word of God. Let them wash them of their sins. And as soon as they get here, you know what I tell them? All right, now that you've been washed, start doing something. Add to your faith. Virtue doesn't just come. You have to pursue virtue. You want to be a virtuous woman? You want to be a virtuous young man? Pursue it. It's not just going to happen to you. You want to show loving kindness and brotherly love? It's not just going to happen because people suck. Can I say that? It's hard to love people. It's hard to be kind to people. It's hard to be long-suffering with people. We're tired of suffering. A lot of us came to church because we're tired of suffering. And then Jesus says, now be long-suffering. That's work. People don't want to work. I'm sorry to tell you that. It don't matter how long you come to this church, I'm going to tell you there's something you got to do. You don't have to do anything for your salvation. It's a free gift. But everything else, you got to work to claim it. You got to fight the war. What, what did they try to change the word to? Oh, come and we'll just encounter. You have, you have amazing gifts that God has for you, and all you have to do is just encounter, and it's going to come to you. That's a lie. You got to go to battle. You got to fight. You got to step out in faith. You got to say, Lord, I want patience, and then have crazy stuff start happening to you. Lord, I want to tithe and then lose your job. Lord, I want to love her the way that she deserves to be loved, and then she starts uh, holding you accountable for how you didn't love her for the last decade. <laughs> right? It's war. It's battle. It's real. There's effort. There's labor. There's long-suffering that actually has to be done by you. Nobody can do it for you. But here's the promise. It says, if you have these things. I love Peter. He's like, look, if you don't do it, then don't expect anything good to happen. But if you have these things, you'll be fruitful and you'll never stumble. Who else in this world can make a promise like that to you? If you do these things. You remember when you got involved in a pyramid scheme and they told you, if you just do these five things, you'll be rich in three months. And you did those things and you ain't rich. You know why? Because it was a lie and they got rich. <laughs> Where has anybody ever been able to make a promise like this to you? If you're not a, a scripture rememberer, write this one down somewhere, please. When I always talk about, man, what do the promises of God say, right? It says you'll be saved and your whole household will be saved. It says your, your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. These are promises of God. This is a pretty good one to me. 2 Peter 1.8 says, if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. Then he says this, if you do these things, you will never stumble. How many of you are tired of stumbling? I know I am. I'm sick of doing good for a long time, and then all of a sudden it's like back to square one. Go straight to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It's like, dang, again? How long have I been playing this game of life? I keep going back there. Maybe if I claim this promise, that wouldn't happen to me. We have some work to do. Worship team, would you come? Be discipled. Know that it's a positive thing. It's ordained by God. We need to learn to pray and overcome. Some of these courses that we're doing, we don't think we're all that intelligent. and We don't think that uh, it's just a, a good thing to do or, or that's going to make us special. What it's about is God talks a lot about knowledge, understanding who he is and, and what comes after that. I want to encourage you, engage in ministry support ministries, be a blessing, engage in the life of the church. I love seeing you guys, but 
I shouldn't say this, I say it too often. Coming to church, is, that's just the beginning. It's not enough. You have to receive the word. You have to begin to be challenged. You have to learn. You have to read. You have to pray. I spend a lot of my time reading and praying, trying to get understanding from God about his word. And you know what it does? Two things to me. The Bible talks about those who begin to learn, they just realize how much they don't know. And I struggle as, as your pastor and your shepherd sometimes because I think <clears throat> if I can see how much further I have to go with God, but I know that a lot of people in my church look at me and say, I'll never go there, or I won't read like that, or I won't pray like that, it just it depresses me to think of what you guys are missing out on if we live that way. To think that God has so many things for you and you either won't claim them or you don't see, you don't see sometimes what God wants to give you. It's not contingent upon me. It's not contingent upon anybody else. It's just contingent upon you engaging with God and having new stereotypes of what it means to be a Christian. These uneducated, untrained men, it says that when they come to a place, they'd say, we know they've been with Jesus. It said they turned the world upside down. Twelve fishermen, tax collectors, and nobodies changed the world. They turned the world upside down because they wouldn't allow themselves to be put in a box of what religion was supposed to be. I want to pray this morning before you go and, and receive communion, if you're going to do that this morning. Why don't we all stand? <clears throat> so just bow your heads, close your eyes. Be silent. Don't mess around. Put your hand down. Focus on yourself. I can't think of a greater compliment than to be called a stereotypical Christian. If you're a stereotypical Christian, you know and you would be able to say these things. I gather with the body and I wait for Pentecost. I expect the unexpected and I know that it'll always work out for my good. I know that there's an adversary, but I'm not hindered by him because I'm always on the lookout. I farm and I cultivate and I add to my faith. I'm fruitful. And not only have I been with Jesus, I'm being transformed into his image. These are the words of stereotypical Christians. These are the thoughts and the feelings of stereotypical Christians. When they hear discipleship, they think joy. They think God speaking directly into their life and leading them. When they think church, they think a gathering of the saints, the earthly church with the heavenly church, and we worship the king, and he inhabits the praises of his people. When they hear restraint, when they hear slavery, when they hear servitude and service, 
They're overwhelmed and overcome with joy to think the one who set them free would allow them to go with him. Oh, that we would be stereotypical this morning. When people see you, a true Christian, a genuine Christian, they may say that you're unique, you're different, you're special, you're the exception to the rule. We should tell them we're stereotypical. We're just like the ones before us. We're just like the ones before them. We're cut from the same cloth. We bear the same wounds in our hands and in our feet as our Savior did. He's the archetype. And we're being transformed into his image. We're not the exception to the rule. We are the rule. And it's available to you as well. Be sure this morning that you're being discipled, that you're being taught, that you're being led by a genuine copy, not a counterfeit. Even if the counterfeit is close, it's not close enough. Last question you need to ask yourself. Can you say honestly this morning that you're a follower of Christ and you are being transformed into his image day by day? The you that you used to be is disappearing and the you that he wants you to become is becoming more and more clear. You see his love, his loving kindness, his sacrifice, his long suffering. You see these things becoming part of who you are. Not something you do and not something you're practicing, not something you're performing, but li literally becoming part of who you are. There's only one way that that happens, by giving your whole life to him. Coming to him as a slave, coming to him bound, coming to him overwhelmed by sin and saying, help me, forgive me. Can you change me? Can you set me free? If you're here this morning, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you've never come to him, you only have two choices. Remain a slave or be set free. I don't have to tell you, you've had enough experiences to know that every time you thought you were going to be set free, you ended right back up in slavery. If you're here this morning and you know that you've never given your life to Christ, you've never been set all the way free, you've never truly been forgiven, you still carry the burdens of sins and past decisions, the scriptures say that all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Nobody can call for you. He can't do it for you. No matter how much he loves you, you have to call on the name of the Lord. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If that's you, you want to see if his promises are true. You know you need salvation. Would you just raise your hand here in this place? Well, I see you guys. Anybody else this morning? Amen. I see you, sis. I see you. You can put your hands down. <clears throat> so for you, this morning, who have just given your life to the Lord, the word says that all of heaven rejoices. I want to give you an opportunity, though, that I'm going to give to everybody else. For, for many of us, it's been months or years or even decades 
Since we made the decision that you made this morning and we love you and we welcome you into the family. But you have a special opportunity on day one to do something that for many of us, hopefully we do today on year five, year 10, whatever it is for us. You have the opportunity to take your freedom that Jesus has given you this morning and tell him, I'll go with you. For everyone who's here, if you believe that that's something you need to do, something you need to say, a commitment you need to make to the Lord, would you just do that right now? Would you, would you understand the freedom he's given you, the love that he's given you, that he's not trying to put you into bondage? What he says is you are free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. He says to you this morning, as he always does, go and sin no more. There's no condemnation in Christ. You're free. All things are lawful for you, but as Paul said, all things are not profitable. You know, I believe that story about Abraham Lincoln, that that young woman, that slave, because she saw love and she saw kindness and she saw freedom, she said to him, I'll go with you. Man, if you see the love and the kindness and the freedom that Jesus has offered you, I encourage you right now in this moment, obligate yourself, make a vow to him, promise to him, I'll go with you. Lord, watch over your sons, watch over your daughters in this place, Lord God. Show us who you are, what you've done for us, Lord God. Remove our stereotypes, our negative connotations with all the good things that you've given us, all the sacrifices that you've made, all the commandments that you've made to us to live like you live, Lord. Let there be nothing negative. Let it be truly a reasonable service and sacrifice. Let it be honoring to you. Let it be a pleasure for us to give and to love. And